Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Steve Asawa continues our series of messages on the Book of the Twelve, today looking at the prophet Jonah. And now, here's Steve. Good morning. Thank you to our opening team, and indeed we do... Just think and pray for Dave and Becky at this time. As Bruce mentioned this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah. And I would venture a guess that it's pretty safe to assume that everybody has heard a story, or hopefully the story, about Jonah. Uh, certainly, it's uh, my recollection is it's one of those children's favorites that just about everyone gets exposed to. One of the benefits of speaking is time spent digging into God's Word. And the book of Jonah, in some ways it's a really simple story, but the reality is it's a masterpiece. It's a work of art. The more you look at it, the more you dig into the Word, the more you see and you learn, and the more you appreciate the way that the whole Bible is all woven together and that indeed the word can be trusted. The book of Jonah gives us a glimpse into the character of God, the one who created and sustains the heavens and the earth. It shows us how a holy and a righteous God loves those he created and wants them to know and to follow him. It also makes us examine our own lives to see how our lives compare with those we read about in this book. There are many who would tell you that the story of Jonah is nothing more than a wonderful children's story and that it never really happened. Only a fool would believe that this thing could be real. The Apostle Paul notes that (coughs) God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So let's seek God's wisdom as we open up his word today. Heavenly Father, we just pause and just thank you for your word. We thank you for the word made flesh. Father, I just pray that you would guide my words this morning and just open all our hearts and minds to what you would have us learn and apply. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So to help learn about Jonah and the context for our passage, let's go back in our Bibles to 2 Kings. And by the way, I'll have, the, uh, I think, most if not all of the passages up on the screen this morning. So we read, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned for forty-one years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not abandon all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, in which he misled Israel. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. So Jeroboam too 
was king around 1793 This chart may look familiar. Uh, Phil put it up a few weeks back. Jonah, son of Amittai, translates to dove, son of my righteousness. Sorry, son of faithfulness, or my true one. Now, Jonah had prophesied that Jeroboam would extend Israel's boundaries, and this did occur. Assyria wasn't quite the world power it was previously. And at that time... So... At, at that time, Assyria was a major, still a major political power. It wasn't doing as well as it was for a few reasons. And you still had the Israel divided into the North and South Kingdoms. And so this is around the time Jonah speaks. So he was also, Jonah was also the prophet around the time of Amos and Hosea. And it was just after the time of Elijah and Elisha. Now, before this time, the Assyrians had conquered much of the area. The Assyrians were known to be pretty ruthless people, and they did some pretty scary things to those that they conquered. Now, people being people, they did have some internal strife, and Jeroboam, too, was able to significantly expand his territory. Remember, he was king of the northern kingdom. And people being people, however, meant that they, the Israelites, turned away from following God. They still went through the motions, but they were really doing what they wanted, not what God wanted. And Hosea and Amos both warned of God's impending judgment, and Hosea had noted it would actually come through Assyria. So Nineveh was located on the Tigris River. So Nineveh is around here. Okay, here's Israel down here. There's the capital, Samaria. So, and it's interesting to note that there were a couple of plagues around the time of Jeroboam II. Uh, apparently one was around 765 B.C. and the other around 759 B.C. And apparently there's also a total eclipse of the sun somewhere around 763. And something that Jonah went to Nineveh around 759 B.C. While some disagree, it's generally accepted that Jonah's the author of this book. We don't have time to read uh, the entire four chapters of the book, but I'm going to try and cover it in four sections. So the first section, chapter one, Jonah is commissioned, and then it goes into chapter two as well. In chapter 3, Jonah is commissioned a second time. In the first part of chapter 4, Jonah expresses his displeasure. He's angry with God. And then it closes with God's compassion at the end of chapter 4. So the first five books, sorry, the first five verses of this book tell us about Jonah being commissioned, his response, what God did then, and the sailor's response. 
We read, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and boarded it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. However, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo into the sea to lighten it for them. So what's wrong with this picture? Well, he went the wrong way. So God tells There we go. Okay, so again, we have Israel here. Nineveh's over here. Again, it's quite the ways to the east and uh, slightly different scale, but uh, here's Joppa right here. And Tarshish, they're not sure exactly where it is, but it's suspected to be here around Spain. So he couldn't have gone much farther in the opposite direction. You know, prophets were required to do some pretty challenging things in those days. However, Jonah is the only prophet who chooses to disobey God's word. So God hurls this great wind, which creates a great storm, so great that the ship was about to break up. And we can surmise that these sailors were experienced people, They're probably Phoenicians, <coughs> Sorry, who knew their craft. And the safest way to make a journey across the Mediterranean was to keep the shoreline in sight as long as you could, instead of going right across in the middle on the water. And the sailors cried out to their gods. They threw the cargo over, and they cast lots to see who had caused this issue. And casting lots uh, was a common way in those days to, when people wanted to determine what the gods were thinking or why the gods were angry or something. And the lot falls on Jonah and he tells them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He also tells them to hurl him into the sea in order to calm the storm. But they don't. They desperately try to row to shore, but to no avail. Verse 14, then they cried out to the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. Then the man became extremely afraid of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord designated a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. In chapter 2, we have Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. It's interesting to note that he seems to acknowledge that he's being punished for rebelling against God, that God saved him, and he says, you know, he'll do what he vows to do. 
I don't see it. Maybe I'm just missing it. Jonah doesn't seem to apologize for his rebellion, though. So just a a couple of the verses uh, from his prayer. Verse 2, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Verse 6, I descended to the base of the mountains. The earth and its bars was around me forever. But you have brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Verse 9, But with a sacrifice to you, with a voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. So God commissions Jonah a second time. And this time, Jonah goes to Nineveh. As we saw earlier, Nineveh was a long way from Samaria. The trek probably took, you know, give or take around 20 days, given how far they would travel in an average day. Not not a short little trip. In verses 3 and 4, we read, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. (coughs) And he cried out and said, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's worth noting that Jonah's message is one of God's judgment. It's not one of eternal hope. And some of you are probably thinking, gee, it'd be nice if Steve stopped after eight words and just got on to lunch. Sorry, not yet. In his message on the uh, introduction to the, the book of the Minor Prophets, or as he noted, the book of the Twelve, David Hook told us how the prophet Joel provided a prescription for repentance. It included dressing in burlap, fasting, weeping, mourning, holding a solemn assembly, prayer, and a change of heart. So how did the Ninevites were told, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, removed his robe from himself, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the dust. And beyond that, the king issued a proclamation. So no person, not even the animals, which were, were to eat or drink. But every person and animal must be covered with sackcloth, which was a symbol of mourning. And people are to call on God vehemently, and they are to turn each one from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his burning anger so we will not perish. When God saw how they reacted and turned from their evil ways, he relented of the disaster that he had declared he would bring on them. So Jonah cries out eight words. Apparently it's only five in Hebrew. And the entire city fasted, put on sackcloth, and prayed. Even the animals were to do the same. It's worth noting that says the people believed in God. We don't know, however, if they simply added the Lord to their list of small g-gods or whether they truly turned to him or not. It doesn't seem to give us that part. However, each person was to turn from his evil way and the violence that each was involved in. 
This was, however, enough for God to relent from the disaster he was going to bring upon them at this time. The last chapter of this book tells of Jonah's displeasure with God for not striking down the Assyrians and tells us about God's response. In expressing his displeasure, his anger, Jonah notes part of God's character that the Lord himself proclaimed in the book of Exodus. Reading from 4 verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Then he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in anticipation, I fled to Tarshish, Tarshish, since you knew that you are, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, and one who relents of disaster. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I'm just looking around. I think I'm on pretty solid ground in saying any preacher would be thrilled to get that kind of a response to the message. And for a one-sentence message at that. God asks Jonah if he has any reason to be angry. Jonah doesn't answer, but he goes away to see what's going to happen to the city. So the Lord designated a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to relieve him of his discomfort. And Jonah was overjoyed about the plant. But God designated a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God designated a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And he begged with all his soul, saying, Death is better to me than life. And God asked Jonah a second time if he has reason to be angry, this time in regard to the plant. And Jonah notes that he does. So let's take a look back at some of the responses that we saw. Our story begins with Jonah being commissioned by God down on the left. Sorry. Yep. Your left. Jonah rebels and he runs in the opposite direction. So God sends a storm and then he sends a great fish and he gets Jonah's attention. Then on the right, Jonah's commissioned a second time. And this time, he goes to Nineveh. God relents from bringing disaster on him, and Jonah's angry with God for doing so. So why did Jonah rebel the first time? And why was he so upset when God spared the people of Nineveh? I think Jonah gives us, Jonah gives us a really good clue when he quotes the Lord as being a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, abundant in mercy, and one who relents of disaster. I would suggest that it's tied to the fact that the Israelites were God's chosen people, and they are enemies with the Assyrians, and as we noted earlier, the Assyrians were pretty ruthless. The people weren't about to forgive and forget the atrocities that were inflicted in the past. They expected God to strike their enemies, I would suggest Jonah didn't want to go preach him in the first place because he didn't want to help his enemies. Jonah told the sailors that he was a Hebrew and he feared the Lord God who made the sea and the dry land. Good words, but 
wrong actions, right? Jonah disobeyed God. He was sleeping through the storm. You know, you wonder why. Well, maybe he was—he had a sense of peace, peace enough that he could sleep, knowing that he wouldn't have to go to Nineveh and preach if he drowned, if God drowned him in the storm. And even when he did go, it doesn't seem like he tried too hard to convince them to turn to God. Or maybe that's just be me being jealous of the reaction he got to a, a five-word speech. So what was the sailor's response? Again, on the left. The pagan sailors had a very different reaction, didn't they? They cried out to their gods. The captain told Jonah to call on his as well. They initially refused to throw Jonah overboard and tried to row to shore. They prayed for their lives, and they prayed that God wouldn't hold them accountable for Jonah's death. And when the storm ceased, they offered a sacrifice and made vows. What about the people of Nineveh on the the right? The people responded favorably to Jonah's message. They fast. They covered themselves in sackcloth. There's a city-wide decree. They prayed to God, and they stopped their violence. And perhaps they're open to Jonah's message, because it wasn't that long ago that they experienced plagues, had an eclipse. And, again, there was some internal strife, so they weren't as strong uh, a power as they were in the, the recent past. And people believed that gods were in control of things like this, the plagues and such. And those were harmful. Those that sorry, those that were harmful were indicative of God's wrath. We do know that their change of heart didn't last very long, though. And then the third set of reactions is Jonah's prayers. When he's in the fish, he calls out in distress to the Lord from the depths of Sheol. Among other things, he acknowledges God has saved him and notes that salvation is from the Lord. You may say he expressed thankfulness and commitment. When God relents of bringing disaster on the people of Nineveh, Jonah's prayer is quite different, isn't it? He's greatly displeased and in anger asks God to take his life twice. Once when he, was re- when he realized what was happening, and the second time after he got exposed to the sun, after God designated the worm to eat the plant. So our story ends with God responding and showing his compassion and care for people and animals. Then the Lord said, You had compassion for the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not also have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? If you haven't noticed, the story of Jonah is one of satire, and it's full of humor and irony. Here we have Jonah, dove, son of my faithfulness, proving to be unfaithful. The prophet of God disobeys while the pagan sailors pray earnestly. The entire city of Nineveh repents in sackcloth and ashes. A powerful king humbles himself at a one-sentence sermon, and even the animals are involved. 
And then the prophet of God sulks, because God didn't destroy the city and all the people in it. The prophet of God is, ex- is upset because the plant which provides the shade has died, yet he isn't concerned about the people of Nineveh. So what is the story of Jonah? As I noted earlier, many people in this world believe the story of Jonah is just a nice children's story. It's a piece of fiction. Others believe that the story of Jonah is like an allegory or like a parable, a story with a broader meaning or message. I would suggest that to you that the story of Jonah is more than that. It's a historical account that leads us to the person of Jesus. Some would argue that many aspects of this story prove it can't be true. For example, no fish or whale is actually capable of swallowing a human, nor could a human survive for three days in a fish. Some argue that Nineveh was far smaller than a three days walk, that a plant could have grown so quickly to provide Jonah with shade. These things are possible, though, and even though they don't happen on an everyday basis, They certainly are possible. We don't know exactly what type of fish God designated. And there was no, Jonah didn't have a GoPro to film himself getting swallowed by this fish. But uh, scholars have shown that a fish can indeed swallow a larger object. Again, it's not the norm, but it's possible. For example, sperm whales have been known to do this on occasion. People have been recovered alive after being swallowed by whale sharks. The period of three days and three nights doesn't necessarily mean that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for a full 72 hours. A day can refer to a full day or part of a day. The reference to the city of Nineveh likely referred to, or Nineveh likely referred to the city and the surrounding area or the suburbs. And it is possible that the plant God designated was a castor bean plant, which is known to grow very quickly. Jonah had told the sailors he was a Hebrew, and he feared the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The one who made the sea and the dry land also has power to control the sea, the land, and all that lives in it and on it, respectively. It was the Lord who hurled the great wind. It was the Lord who designated the great fish to swallow Jonah, who designated the plant, who designated the worm, and who designated that scorching east wind. Our God is the God of the impossible. The same God also sent his son to be born of a virgin, to live, to die for the sin of mankind, and to be raised from the dead. People have made it their goal to disprove the resurrection and come to faith in Jesus because they realized that there's so much evidence for it and that it's true. In Matthew 12, Jesus has been telling the people about the kingdom of God and now he answers a request for a sign. We read, And some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, and so no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. 
For just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation and at the judgment, and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The late Tim Keller was quoted as saying this, Jesus isn't one more teacher. Come to tell you how to save yourself and find God. Rather, he is God himself. Come to save and find you. Jesus isn't another teacher. He's a savior. So the miraculous sign of Jonah isn't so much a display of power as an astonishing display of weakness. Jesus laid aside his divine glory and prerogatives and humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Just as Jonah was cast into the water to save the sailors from the wrath of God, so Jesus would be cast into death to bear punishment our sins deserve to save us. And just as Jonah, quote-unquote, came back from the dead, so Jesus was raised for our justification. That's the sign of Jonah. So, in conclusion, we've looked at the book of Jonah, we've looked at Jonah, how he acted, how the sailors and the people of Nineveh reacted to circumstances in their lives. But today's passage really isn't about them. Neither is it meant to focus on the fish that God designated to save Jonah. The story of Jonah is really about God's judgment and God's love for those he created, not only for the Jewish people, but for others, uh, I think most of us are Gentiles, for us as well. God wants all people to turn to him and to put him first in their lives. We are to treat others as God would. Jonah couldn't accept the fact that God cared for Jonah's enemies. He didn't see them as being worthy of God's mercy. We're all created in the image of God. And the Bible is clear that we've all, fall, all sinned and fallen. God alone is the one who's qualified to judge. Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and he was raised for our justification. Jonah said the right things about God, but his actions showed his heart wasn't quite there. And I would hazard a guess that we probably all act a little bit like Jonah at times, and it's something we should guard against. So in closing, here's my version of a Jonah-like message, and it's still a couple of words longer than his. We will all stand before the righteous judge one day. Will we be ready? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this message of Jonah. We thank you for the lessons of Jonah. We thank you for the, the thought that we can't run from you, Lord. No matter what we think or what we've done or how we feel, we can't flee from a loving God. And so, Lord Jesus, we cast ourselves be, before you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy today, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you are continually for us.
and we rejoice in that. We know you are stronger, Lord, stronger than anything that would oppose us. And so we find rest in you, Jesus, today. May we proceed from this place encouraged to live out our life for you in faith and in obedience. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.